0: My guest this week is the founder of Calderwood Capital, the author of Popular Delusions, and my good friend, Dylan Grice. Dylan's ability to not only think about the financial world in unconventional ways, but to communicate those thoughts clearly and effectively has placed his writing in the very top echelon of the research world. Now with the founding of Calderwood Capital, Dylan has an investment vehicle through which he can take advantage of his unique, sometimes idiosyncratic ideas. In this conversation, we hear Dylan's views on the inflation-deflation debate, his thoughts on uranium's place in the ESG debate, and how, in order for investors to take advantage of the opportunities currently presented by the markets, they likely need to get more creative and go to places which might make them feel somewhat uncomfortable. We also take advantage of Dylan dropping the C-bomb to discuss you-know-what. So, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dylan Grice. Dylan, mate, welcome to the podcast. So good to get this chance, finally, for you and I to have a bit of a chinwag.
1: Yeah, thank you. Really um, flattered to be here.
0: This conversation's been about six or seven years in the making, as far as I can figure out. We've been kind of circling around each other for such a long time. We've had a couple of dinners in that time, but I uh, my hidden microphone failed on both occasions, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> probably not a bad not a bad thing after a couple of drinks my English and your Scottish accents get unintelligible but um as always there's such a, a long list of things I want to talk to you about but what I'd love to start with is Caldwell Capital your new venture and the welcome return of popular delusions which I have to say I missed extraordinarily in its absence so I guess let's start with popular delusions because that predates Calderwood. just give us kind of the backstory of that, how you started it, what it set out to do, and it's kind of evolution over the years. I mean, it was originally, um, I mean, God, years ago now, uh, I went to work at Sock
1: Gen with Albert Edwards because um, James Montier uh, had left. Uh, he used to work with, with Albert and um, he'd gone to GMO to work on their asset allocation team, which is where he still is. And so Albert hired me really to replace James and, and James had yeah. a, a, kind of carved out a niche in the, in the kind of uh, banking industry for just <laughs> it sounds kind of funny to say, but James's niche was that he was quite interesting. <laughs> 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 and like, you know, banking in those days was just really, and I think it probably still is, but this was before social media and Twitter and banking in those days was really just driven by compliance departments. So, like, a friend of mine who was um, working at Morgan Stanley, for example, wasn't allowed to use the word crash in his right. research, right. Right? because that was deemed too controversial and emotive, and it might... Triggering, occur. they call it these days. It, it was triggering. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you couldn't really do anything. You couldn't say anything controversial. Do it. So... Um, Sell-side research, banking research was really, really dull and drab. And um, Albert was always a kind of outlier. He was always very, very vocal and very interesting. So he had a big following, as he still does today. James had that following. James kind of really brought behavioral psychology and behavioral finance to, to, I think, to a kind of wider audience because it had been largely an academic thing. So James started writing about it when he was uh, when he was at the bank with Albert, uh, and and so that so so that was the kind of team that that, that I joined, and I'd known James for you know, for, for years as well. So, so that's kind of where I started out and, and I started, I didn't want to just write the same pieces as, as yeah. James, but so, so popular delusions was, was my kind of newsletter. And I, I I kind of started writing that and, and kind of had some success. I think I was kind of lucky as well, because it was, you know, it was around about the financial crisis and, um, you know, I'd always kind of had this uh, suspicion of really of, of kind of central banks. And um, I, I suppose, you know, I, I was quite kind of, I was an economist by training, but there was always something wrong with with, with with economics. I never quite felt comfortable with economics until I started reading von Mises and Hayek and, and the Austrian stuff. And suddenly, I realized, you know, that's what economics should be. That's what it be. that's what it should have been doing at university. That's what economists should be studying. It should be based on these kind of foundations. And and so I think I kind of wrote about a lot of that type of stuff at a time when you know the central banks were doing QE and the central banks had totally dropped the ball with the global financial crisis. And so when central banks were kind of going around telling everyone that they were writing to the rescue, I think a lot of people were just saying, you guys are joking, you guys caused this, you guys were asleep at the wheel, and now we we were supposed to think that that somehow you know what you're doing. That was kind of one of the themes that that, that I would write about. And I I just think it kind of seemed to kind of just touch a nerve. And and so the, the newsletter just became very, very popular. And that was kind of great, but I I, I kind of liked to think that, you know, I I mean, I still do find Austrian economics interesting, and I find economics, but really, I was kind of an investor, I'd been a prop trader before this. And so I kind of felt that I had quite a lot of, you know, ideas on how to build portfolios and how to to invest. And no one seemed to be interested in that, but everyone seemed to just want to know, you know, what I thought about gold. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, after a while it kind of got a bit boring and so yeah so i ended, I ended up leaving and, and i went off to a kind of family office and and it was like it was like the opposite of sock gen where sock gen was all about writing and there was no investing yeah. the family office it, it was really about investing and there was no writing which i totally loved by the way but uh, and it was great fun and phenomenally educational uh, you can read as many books as you like but you ultimately had to do it and so you know that kind of experience was was kind of invaluable, but you know again that kind of reached its conclusion, and um, and I, I wanted to both write and to invest, and not really have to choose one or the other. Yeah, that was the basic idea of Coldwood Capital. So we're you know we run a research subscription business, which is Popular Delusions, and um, but we also run a, a hedge fund.
0: And, and, you know, I, I I cannot recommend Popular Delusions highly enough. I mean, it is such an extraordinary read every time. And it is so different. And I'm interested in Thank you. the differences. Well, look, you you know I've been a fan of this thing for years. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I read it as soon as I receive it every time. But I have noticed the change in style and tone. And, and I think what you've just laid out there kind of crystallizes that. It is a lot less about the big picture. Here's what's going wrong. Right. And, and, and it... I guess in tandem with Calderwood now, it drills it down into here's what you should do about it. How have you found your writing style changed after the hiatus? I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I, I think it's probably, I think
1: it's a, a little bit less ethereal than it used to be. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit less philosophical and abstract than, than it used to be. I think that, you know, a really good kind of barometer of, of your kind of entertainment value when you're writing really is how entertaining you find it. And I think that a good kind of way to gauge that is, you know, how kind of uproariously do you laugh at your own jokes as you're writing <laughs> them? Right? Because I quite often, I remember Albert used to sit and just, you knew he was writing because he was basically just kind of wetting himself. You know, you could hear him in the office just, just chuckling away and laughing to himself, right? And it's true, you know, I think when I'm, when, certainly when I was at Sog I used to I used to just, used to piss myself laughing at my own jokes, right? Yeah. I, you know, I always think, you know, if you can't laugh at your own jokes, then, you know. You <laughs> yeah, I can't expect anybody laugh. else to, right? Exactly. <laughs> right as well. Uh, so, you know, I, I still find myself laughing a lot <laughs> at my own jokes when I'm writing. <laughs> so hopefully it's just as entertaining as it used to be. But I said, the subject matter's is different. And the reason for that is because, Listen, I I still don't like central banks, right? I still think that they're the phonies. I think that they don't know what they're doing, right? I don't really trust their judgment. I'm not even sure I trust their integrity. Um, There's a whole big, long list of things I don't like about them, but, you know, how many times do you want to say that? How often do you want to keep repeating it and repeating it? And, you know, the the danger is, and this is something I found when I was on the sell side, is that if you repeat a story, which is a big hit, and suddenly you've got this kind of fan base, you've got a bunch of followers. You know, the followers kind of just, they want to hear that story again and again and again. And before you they, know- they them, want,
0: Yeah, they only want the greatest hits. They don't want the songs off the new album. That's right. They just want, they, you know, like the kind of
1: the ACDC guy who was kind of criticized, who's <laughs> saying, you know, someone criticized him and saying, your, your, your records sound the same, you know, they always sound the same, you haven't evolved. And he said, look, ACDC, we we, we started it to uh, to make music that we thought 16 year olds would like. Right, that's what we're still doing. <laughs> and so, you know, which, which is kind of fine. But yeah, I personally just kind of got a, a bit bored of it. But b, there is a danger if you're trying to please the crowd, you just start repeating that story and you, you start yeah. to kind of go stale. And so, you start to, as an investor, you're, or even a hopefully a keen observer of markets, then your your job is really to be alert. Uh, and if you're just kind of stuck in that easy groove that there's always an audience who you will always turn up to hear you sing the same song, yeah. then you stop being alert and you start missing what's going on. You start missing the new stuff. You start missing the controversies. And so you don't get the same stimulation from the market. And ultimately, that's what, you know, what, what I kind of thrive off. So I think that today what we write about is not just me, is driven by what we're investing in. Yeah, and that, that does, and that dubs heels with the fund. All yeah, right, it makes so, a big difference. So yeah, I, I think it's probably more practical. And frankly, it's probably less accessible. You know, I think that's also true. I think it's written much more for investors rather yeah. than just kind of interested laymen.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely right. And I, and I couldn't agree more about the, say, when you're writing, I've found the same thing over the years. I, I, you have to write for yourself, because if you find it interesting, you have to trust that the people that enjoy what you do will also find it interesting instead of, as you say, and you know, the central bankers, they used to be a variable, now they're a constant, and so you can't really, you're right, it's, there's no point, you can refer to it, but what what else is there to say? At some point, the, the denouement will occur, and then people will either go, see, I told you so, or just keep a dignified silence, but yeah. they still do have an effect, but it, we all know. Well, it's also,
1: you know, it, oh, oh, by the way, I, you know, at some point, the denouement will
0: occur, or it won't,
1: right? Maybe we just know <laughs> oh, what that's wrong. Maybe we've missed some, yeah. and, that, and that's okay too, right? But I, again, I think, um, yeah, it just gets boring after a while, you know. I mean, I think we all understand who who they are, what they are. We all understand the reaction function, right? So we know what they're going to do, um, and we know when they're going to do it. I think there's no point in complaining about about how it's not fair, right? Yes. There's no point yes. in complaining yes. about how it's somehow immoral. It's just, I mean, maybe, maybe not, but practically, so what? Who cares? You're there to build a portfolio that can withstand various types of stresses, including some of the volatility that politicians and central bankers impart into markets. You have to embrace that as a part of the landscape. I think kind of, you know, hopping up and down, complaining and banging the table that it's just not fair and that we should all be in a gold standard. You know, so, so what? It just, I say, it just, I find that kind of, I find
0: that a little bit boring after a while. It's interesting. And that's a perfect segue. You've set me up nicely there because what, one of the things that I've found throughout the series of conversations that I've had over the last year, when you talk about we have these things and we have to deal with them whether we like them or not, and we have to build a, a portfolio that will weather whatever situations and thrive in them. And that brings me to the topic of this moment in time we're at now where are we potentially at a pivot point from the pressures of deflation being the overwhelming thing that we have to, protect our portfolio against to inflation. And, you know, I've I've spoken to mutual friends of ours like Russell Napier, who's had a big 180 switch. I've spoken to Lacey Hunt and Dave Rosenberg, who are still yeah. staunchly in the deflation. And this debate has pushed its way to the front of every conversation. And I know it's something you've been thinking about. So I'd love to get your kind of thought process. Before we get to actually what you think, I'd love to to hear how your thoughts around this have evolved over the last 12, 18 months. How have they evolved? Okay, that's yeah. a that's a
1: really interesting question, actually, um, because it is a work in process, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're just constantly, you know, updating it. Um, I, I suppose my starting point would be going back to sock gen, and I wrote a lot about QE and a lot about inflation risk. And uh, you know, one of the things that I love, that I, I really enjoyed, I spent a lot of time studying various hyperinflations. And wrote about a lot of hyperinflations, the Weimar hyperinflation, the Israeli hyperinflation yeah. that people don't know so much about, you know, maybe it's kind of Latin American ones. And, um, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, Dylan's that kind of hyperinflation guy, you know, he thinks that QE means hyperinflation. And, and that, like, was just not true at all. And I thought, and I still think, if you want to understand the system, You learn about a system when it malfunctions. Hyperinflation is one of the ultimate malfunctions. So you should be studying hyperinflations to better understand the system. And my conclusion was there's no way there's going to be hyperinflation, right? Uh, Very, very unlikely. But uh, that doesn't mean you can't get an inflation problem of like, you know, and by inflation problem, I mean, you know, accelerating to 5% on your way to 10%, on your way to 20%, which is kind of what we had in the 70s, right? Yeah. So that was the thing that kind of occupied me. And I, I wrote in 2010, I dug out this old piece, and it said, um, in print, in 10 years time, we'll be staring at, at the whites of inflation's eyes, all right? And by that, I think inflation will be around about 4% and rising and accelerating, right? And central banks will a panic about what to do with it. So that's why I said this is pre-pandemic, yeah. right? And of course, ten years later, inflation break evens were fifty basis points lower <laughs> than when I'd written those words. And the CPI was actually about fifty basis points lower as well. Everything was lower, so you know that was like a big ah, that was wrong, right? We yeah. got that completely wrong. And so I did kind of spend some time and trying to understand what I got wrong. And I, I won't kind of bore you with the details of that kind of self-flagellation, but. Uh, It was a very interesting exercise, actually. Yeah, as it always is, yeah. It really, really is. You know, what did I actually get wrong? What kind of thinking mistakes did I make? And I think one of the mistakes actually was just, it was classic ad hominem, right? You play the man, right? Not the idea. And a lot of the people who turned out to be completely right, by the way, that it was deflation, not inflation, were a lot of the people I find the most obnoxious. You know, for example, Paul Krugman. So nice. I kind of just felt well if Paul Krugman is going to go out saying x you know I'm just going to say you know why And you know I wouldn't have said that that's what I was doing at the time but with hindsight no 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 I, I would say, it, yeah right so you know, I think that's kind of an important lesson you know play the idea not the proponent of the idea and that's a difficult thing to do for all but anyway I think that was one thing in terms of the actual forces on inflation one of the things that I which is stupid right because as someone who I think had you know had some kind of insight you know some kind of familiarity with with the ideas of the austrian economics one of the kind of ideas of that the austrians have is that listen deflation is 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 what the economy does yeah right you know it's not something you have to be bothered by or, or concerned by it's not something that central banks should be fighting right now credit deflation is, is a different thing the 1930s that was a credit deflation but yeah. austrians would say yeah you only get a credit deflation if you had a credit inflation in the first place and where did the credit inflation come from? these these bloody central banks again <laughs> well, you know you don't have these kind of central banks then you wouldn't have the credit inflation you wouldn't have the credit deflation and what you just get is standard cpi deflation right because what we do as a species is we make more with less right you know we naturally try and pull prices in so Really, a kind of properly functioning economy should be really a deflation machine. Yeah. Right? It should, it, because it's all about productivity. So I knew this, right? So I should, with hindsight, have known, been able to join the dots and say, well, the biggest shift in central banking really occurred in the 70s and the 80s, really in the 80s and, and 90s. I should say, not the 70s. 80s and 90s, as a response to the 70s, what politicians did was said listen, to the very unusual step of saying, listen, we're not actually very good at managing monetary policy. We tend to screw things up. All that inflation in the 70s, it was kind of our fault. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna hand over to a bunch of technocrats. We're gonna make these technocrats independent and we're gonna lower inflation that way. We're gonna let them manage monetary policy according to the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the 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 kind of economic calculus, if you like, rather than the political calculus. Because yeah. what used to, in the UK, what you used to have was there's an election on the horizon the incumbent political party controls the monetary policy levers, so what do they do? They cut interest rates, right? Because so they so they can stoke a boom. So there's a feel good factor, so they've got more chance of being voted in at the next election. And then as soon as the election's over and they've got the you know place back in power, what do they do? They jack up interest rates. So what you had was this huge political calculus, right? Rather than just an economic calculus. And as we know, politicians are fundamentally inflationary, right? You know they will always they will always want to spend other people's money. Yeah. Right, there's a, there's no problem that can't be solved by spending more money, right? Um, and so, politics is you know structurally inflationary, whereas an economy is structurally deflationary. When you removed politicians from central banking, even though central banks are highly flawed and the model of central banking is highly flawed, by removing that political calculation from policy setting. You were allowing the economy to to come back to something like what it ordinarily would be without political interference, i.e., deflationary. And so, what we end up with, I think, is an economy which which does what you know what it kind of should generally be doing, right? Which is which is producing deflation. So, I think that that force is very powerful, and that's one that I missed, right? And so, I think when I was writing, I thought, okay, this is actually something that can continue much longer because it can that's how i've been thinking about it over the last couple of years and my kind of instinct today is to think well actually the economy is still a deflation machine right the economy still produces deflation and therefore even with all this kind of qe my guess is we probably we don't get the inflation take off this cycle right so that that would be kind of where i'm thinking now the one qualification is this you know we've got central bankers at the fed who are concerned by income and wealth inequality and minority unemployment, right? And these are, I think, these are very laudable things to be worried about, but these are political, These these are what politicians do. Over in Europe, we've got the ECB saying that climate change is some kind of monetary policy objective. And so anyway, you know, which is just unbelievably stupid to me. But um, what it means is that you've got politicians back in the seat of of the central banks. And so you're starting to get that political calculus and central bank decision making again. And therefore, as we know, politicians are inflationary. And therefore, I think that we're probably in the foothills of an inflation wave.
0: So yeah, there's a very long winded answer to your question. Did that answer your question? No, but it was a really interesting one, because, you know, following that along with you, I recognize each of those turning points very, very clearly. And and that's why I think this one is so important, because you know, the inflection point we've reached is such that depending on your time frame, there is, I think, a much higher chance that inflation is something you actually do need to have a plan for. Because previously when right. there's been little blips and they said it's transitory, it was a much easier story to buy, I think. The evidence was pretty clear that it was transitory but you know the point you raised there about some of the 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 sort of moral imperatives that are being taken one of which is equality Uh, you know and we're seeing things like um big companies the amazons the walmarts of the world raising their minimum wage because they want to be seen as good corporate citizens right because they want to be seen as woke if you want to use that that highly charged phrase And so, you know, when I look at this and I think, well, I'm not worried about the next three months, six months, maybe even 12 months. But after 30 years of a portfolio set up to perform in a deflationary trending environment, what do I have to worry about 18 months, two years, three years from here? Is it time to start shifting the way I build that portfolio to combat, as you beautifully put it, we're in the foothills of of an inflation. And and I agree, we're not talking hyperinflation here. But with the changes the world has seen in terms of the debt level, a constant 6% inflation is a major, major problem at this point in time. The world will struggle mightily, certainly the Western world will struggle mightily if we have 6% inflation. So when you talk about the foothills, is this something that you look forward and think, I don't think it's a problem for now, but I think it's a problem in the foreseeable future. So I have to start thinking about how to deal with it. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way for me to answer that is um, actions speak louder than words.
1: And uh, our fund has, is pretty much the, the, the premise of our fund is that uh, the duration thing is over. Right. Uh, it's as simple as that. Um, it's very straightforward. It? I think when you look at, you know, government yield at kind of 10, 30 years, you know, lucky if you get a percent. I still with negative yields in 10 years in big parts of Europe, including uh, Switzerland? I don't think anyone would really kind of disagree with you if you were to, you know, when you say that the duration of the market is over. And then, you know, late 1970s, interest rates were like 20%, Yeah, right? And you've gone from 20 to zero over the last 40 years. That's just been a phenomenal tailwind for pretty much all asset prices, all asset markets. I mean, obviously for government bonds, but for corporate bonds, for equities, for whole industries like venture and private equity, and um, and selling for real estate. So you know, we kind of launched the fund, and this isn't you know, I, you know, I don't want to be you know on your kind of podcast plugging the fund. That's not kind of what we no, no, no. do. But you know, to answer your question, uh, when I left the family office, one of the things that I was thinking about doing was well, you know how do I invest my wife and I's capital, and. Um, I I don't really want to be on the same playing field as everyone else because what, what everyone else, it seemed to me, you know, what everyone else is doing about this question, because I don't know anyone who's not asking this question. I don't know anyone who's, who thinks that everything's fine. I don't know anyone who thinks, well, you know, hang on, if interest rates go up to like 5% in a few years and then like, you know, 10% in 10 years time. And then 10 years time after that, there'll be 20% and maybe even go, you know, I don't, I mean, yeah, we'll be fine. We'd be totally fine. I don't know anyone who says that. I know everyone who says, yeah, we'd be, we'd be screwed. Let's just hope that doesn't happen, right? So the strategy seems to be, as far as I can see, that you keep your fingers crossed, right? So everyone's kind of sitting on this time bomb with their fingers crossed, hoping that the, the, the bomb doesn't go off on their watch, right? Yes. And um, I really, really didn't want to be in, in that place. And um, I didn't want to be invested with people who were in that place. And so, you know, you started kind of thinking about how I would put my own portfolio together and build my own portfolio. Came to the conclusion that all of the stuff that has benefited from this duration bull market, you know, public equity, private equity, venture, most credit, certainly fixed income credit, government bonds, um, corporate bonds, it's all over. It's all over. And basically you don't want any of that in your, in your portfolio. And I'm simplifying a little bit. Yeah, sure. But uh, but that's that was basically our conclusion. And when, when we were looking around for that type of portfolio that we wanted to invest in, we couldn't find one. Uh, and so we thought, well, well we're going to have to just do this ourselves. Um, and I, by this point, I was speaking to my partner in this, uh, on the fund site. And, you know, that's that's kind of, um, uh, the you know the conclusion we reached. How do we build a duration free portfolio? And so that's what we did. So to answer to your question, you know, do I think people should be not just thinking about a duration bear market and a potential inflation risk uh, and financial repression, but do I think people should actually be doing something about
0: it? Then all I can say is, well, yeah, because well, that's what I'm doing. Right? Yeah. So that's really interesting because as I'm sitting listening to you saying that. I kind of put myself in the place of many, many investors today who are at that turning point themselves, but many of them don't really realize it. Like you say, people realize there's something wrong. They don't have the experience or the understanding of how to to think about this. So So just talk about how you manage to think that way at a period where you know that you're thinking differently to the vast majority of investors. You're hearing all this stuff all around you. I guess it's something to do with courage. How do you find the courage to stand apart, to have the conviction to think, okay, the problem that I need to actually mitigate is one that no one else is doing anything about because it's a very, very lonely place to be. So so just talk about how you you manage that process mentally. Um, How do you manage that? I'm not really sure.
1: I certainly wouldn't use the word courage, I don't think there's anything courageous about it. I think I, I, I um, yeah, I, I feel that um, if anything, it's the opposite. You know, I, I'm, I, I don't have the courage to put my own capital in some of these kind of places and some of these vehicles that that are sitting on this time bomb that I talked about earlier. I don't have the the, the kind of courage or the faith or I don't have enough capital to actually not worry about how it's valued in five, 10, 20 years time. I don't have that luxury. So it's almost, it's, it's, you know, I, I have um, an analyst background, uh, an analytical uh, background. I just never really got comfortable. I haven't been able to get comfortable with the kind of solutions that the, the other people were putting in front of, of me and, and of us. And I, as I said, uh, you know what we are talking about here. We could have been talking about a few years ago. We could have been talking about, you know, five years ago. You know, I think we all we can all see the danger, but no one seems to have a, a, a good answer to it. Or, or yeah. a lot of people have. but Actually, that's not fair. People do have good answers. Some people always say, "Well," or that, I mean, it's obvious, man. Gold. You need to buy gold. You got to be having, you know. Or then some people might say, "Well, for me, it's equities." Right, you know, why? What's wrong? If I can if I can buy, you know, you buy gold as a lump of metal, right? I can buy Google, right, which has got a fortress balance sheet, net cash, dominates its industry, and um, it's a very natural uh, monopoly, really. Uh, and uh, you know, I can buy that on free cash flow yield of you know six or seven well, percent, including uh, growth and expected, it's on six or seven percent. Why would own gold? Right? Yeah. So I'm just going to own Google. Okay, so far, so everyone's got their own answers. I suppose I just never quite got comfortable with, with other people's answers. You know, I kind of preferred my own answer.
0: No, but, but, but that's <laughs> precisely my point, right? That's precisely my point because this, this age of FOMO, this age of every idea you have being instantly transmitted to everybody, you can't say anything now without everyone knowing what you're thinking. There is courage required to step outside and say, I get that everybody's doing this, but I'm doing that because you're judged at the time you say it. And thanks to various, uh, you know, remind me tweets and stuff, people will pick, oh, yeah, remind me that Dylan Grice said inflation could be a problem in three months. You know, you're constantly. So it does take courage to say, look, this is what I'm doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think... Um,
0: uh Or maybe stupidity. I don't know. (laughs) It's a very fine line. I've walked it my entire life.
1: Maybe maybe arrogance and stupidity. Maybe they're the problems. Um, No, listen, I think, um, you know, as I said, originally we were trying to solve a problem for ourselves. I wasn't really trying to solve a problem for anyone else. I was just trying to solve a problem for myself, find a solution that I felt comfortable with, that I was happy with. And so I'd helped establish one of the biggest family offices in, in Europe. Right, by this stage, uh, family offices are kind of quite unusual places for all sorts of reasons. But, but one of the kind of things about a family office, which is very different from you know, I think if you're working in a big institution or a big hedge fund or even a startup hedge fund, family offices are really about capital preservation, yeah. right? You know, because you know if you're if, if you're in that kind of bracket, you're not that bothered about being much richer, right? Generally, you just you just don't want to be poor. Right, that's so you, you know, you just you want to make sure that the, the the capital is still there next year, the year after, five, ten, twenty, thirty years time, etc. That's what you want to steward. That has been my job, really, you know, for for the last kind of eight or nine years. And so that kind of mindset is is a very particular mindset. And the other thing about family offices is that you don't have that kind of institutional imperative, right? You don't have a benchmark. You don't have particularly strong restrictions necessarily. I mean, obviously you impose your own restrictions and you you know, you know parameterize your own portfolio and your portfolio teams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the kind of flow of ideas that you see in a family office is just astonishing. You know, the amount of crazy stuff out there, the amount of crazy deals, the amount of kind of nooks and crannies that you can kind of explore. Someone somewhere will try to raise money to uh, for some kind of crazy investment idea. And like in a family office, you kind of see all of that flow, all that idea flow. So I think I'd been in a kind of, and again, I hadn't been writing for probably ten years. I wasn't, you know, in the public spotlight at all. All I was doing was just thinking very, very deeply about the portfolio and about investing. And um, uh, and so you know, I kind—it's of, almost like um, I kind of reached this conclusion and and and, and decided um, how I wanted the portfolio to look before realizing how wacky it was. Right, right. Yeah, right. So I actually didn't know. It. I just <laughs> I didn't realize the whole world was pointing at me laughing. Right.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I, I guess the, the, the big advantage, as I see it, of that tack you took, which I, I think is exactly the right way to go when you say you built this portfolio for yourself, is that you tend to attract only like minded investors. You attract yeah, people I mean, who are attracted um, to that, which is important.
1: That's, I mean, that's been the kind of story so far.
0: And because it's, it's our
1: capital to start with, it's not like we're going to pull the rug on it. It's not like, you know, we need to make, you know, the business has got to be scaled to, you know, the nth degree by year X. Otherwise we're going to withdraw the capital, right? You know, so, you know, it's not like that might happen and, you know, we'll have to go and find another job. It's like, no, this is, this is what we're doing. If it's good enough for us, maybe it will be good enough for, for some other people. Um, uh, so that's a kind of different, and I think we're very, very lucky to be in this position. But that's a different kind of way of of looking at it. From I think a lot of hedge fund startups or yeah. ordinary, just actually business startups. You know, and you say you've got some capital, you can string this out for a couple of years. It has to have worked. You know, if we're not, you know, cash flow positive by you know this order of magnitude by this period of time, we're going to have to go and do something else. You know, we, we don't have that type of pressure. So again, we, we, we don't really need to pander to anyone or to, we don't have to compromise what, what we want to do for the sake of, you know, bringing in a ticket or bringing in an investor. Yeah. You know, we're, um, we're we're pretty lucky, I guess.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about some of those ideas. And the one I want to kick off with is something you've been talking about for, a, it seems like a very long time now. And that's that's uranium and you know, nuclear power. This is something that I've seen you Talk about. I've, I've read your writing on it, and you make a compelling case. So, so what what is that case for uranium for, for nuclear power?
1: So, I mean, I, I should I should actually say that uranium is one of those ideas that we we've done privately, but not not it's not in the fund, right? Yeah. It doesn't quite fit in with the fund, and, and the reason for that is because the, the I think the, the the way we've kind of invested in uranium, we've we, we've actually bought some uranium miners and some uranium equities, and we've allocated to a uranium equity manager, but in our fund we don't do equities. Yep. Right. So this this is a it's a it's a separate thing. But I, I do think it's a you know a fabulous setup really. It's been a fabulous setup. We've been in it you know for how long ago, yeah maybe about a year and a half now I think a bit less. Um but the setup is basically um that I mean you've got a couple of things going on really I think the top level part of the thesis isn't really a part of the thesis. The top level story is that, you know, if you're serious about the environment and you're serious about decarbonisation, but you don't want to kind of just stop economic growth, nuclear has to be a part of the solution. Yeah. Right. That is It's as simple as that. Right. Um, And so the misperception of nuclear, you know, you've got states in America who are are going nuclear free, right? You've got Germany trying to go nuclear free, Sweden. So you've, you've got these, this kind of political movement to eradicate nuclear because nuclear is not environmentally unfriendly and the reason people think it's environmentally unfriendly is because they're kind of aware of um, chernobyl they're aware of three mile island they're aware of fukushima uh, they were terrified by fukushima yeah. and fukushima really was what kind of uh bust the bubble several years ago now uh, and so you've got this kind of huge political kind of movement to kind of marginalize nuclear right and it's just it, it doesn't stack up right it doesn't stack up with the logic Chernobyl was was obviously a, a disaster, but it actually, in terms of the death toll, you're probably most there's a very wide spread of estimates. But you know, you know, if you ask the Russian government, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <zero. laughs> there was only a, there was only about 17 deaths. Yeah,
0: and they were rabbits, as far as I can figure <laughs> out. Yeah, uh,
1: but then if you you know, I think some of the other estimates, um, are pretty kind of wacky. I, I think the maximum estimate is like about sixty thousand. 60, 70,000, I can't remember now. Um, it's been a few years since I looked at it. But the median is around about three to 4,000, mm-hmm. right? So that's, obviously, we never really know, and it all depends on them, right? But then median, three to 4 that's a reasonable guess. And by the way, that is a disaster. So, without yeah, to yeah, Chino, any Chinovo, I mean, Chernobyl was, was a disaster, right? But here's what we do know. The first thing is, those reactors at Chernobyl didn't even have containers. There was no protection against an explosion, right? So they don't even vaguely compare to today's modern reactors from a safety perspective. Right, it's a bit like comparing, you know whatever whatever contraption the Wright brothers used to get up into the sky the first time, right, and whatever it was they did that constituted flying, right. It's a bit like comparing that contraption, you know, with kind of modern fighter jet or something like that, right. It just doesn't, it, it just doesn't compare, right. So that's the kind of first thing. The second thing is that. Okay, so we don't know the actual deaths. We think it was probably, you know, call it four or 5,000. But um, what we do know is that the predictions that Chernobyl would be uninhabitable for 200 years were completely wrong. Yeah. Right? There is a phenomenally rich biodiversity today, a thriving ecosystem of plant life, fauna, and um, uh, animals, animals and insects. Right, who who lived there absolutely freely, and I think people now as well are starting to move back in. Right, um, so those predictions were wrong, right? Which suggests that you know our kind of understanding of you know radiation levels and radiation poisoning was not as accurate as we had thought. Right, so that's so that's again that's that's the Chernobyl thing. We don't, you know, it's not quite as. What I'm trying to say is yes, it was a disaster, but it wasn't quite as bad as everyone thinks. Right, that's so that's. Right. What, the other two disasters, Three Mile Island and um, Fukushima. Uh, Fukushima. So there wasn't even a radioactive leak in Three Mile Island. Yeah. It was just a nothing. It was, it was, it was just pure fear. And Paul yeah, Slovic yeah, exactly right. even wrote about it. Paul Slovic, a behavioural psychologist, he made his whole career out of stu- um, studying the public perception of risk, he, i.e. the public misperception of risk. And he used Three Mile Island as a case study. And how people just did not understand what actually happened, and were so terrified, right, um, of, of something that was just in their heads. Fukushima, nobody died of um, from the radiation leak, right? Nobody died of of, of poisoning, which was very very slight. Everyone died of the evacuation, right? That was that was where the casualties were. So these are the big three nuclear disasters, and with the exception of Chernobyl, they weren't particularly disastrous. Now, if you actually look at the real disasters from electricity power generation, if you're really, really scared about the effect, um, the potential death toll of electricity power generation, then the one thing you should be absolutely terrified of is hydro, right? Because when those dams bust, they just wipe out. anyone, Any village or town in that valley gets flattened without warning, right? Um if you're saying nobody wants to live next to a nuclear power plant, um, which is kind of true, you've got to say, well, why does anyone want to live next to, you know, a dam, a dam. right? And people seem to be fine with living next to a dam, but they don't want to live right, and which is like the biggest disaster, I, I can't remember the name of it now, in 1947 in China, uh, a dam bust, 140,000 people died, 140, right? Now think about the three or 4,000 in Chernobyl, and compare that to the 140,000. Yeah. And that was just one dam busting. So, you know, you can go on and on and on. Basically, the public perception of nuclear is just completely wrong. The fact is, it's completely green, right? There is zero carbon, yes. right? And you can do baseload. Right, so unlike solar and wind, which kind of comes on, you know, when you're lucky, right, and is therefore not reliable, uh, nuclear is completely reliable. So there is no other solution, really. I think that's the logic. So I think that there's certainly a case for saying, well, people eventually are gonna wake up to nuclear, and people are gonna realize that if we actually are serious about the environment, you know, nuclear should be priority number one, replacing our kind of coal and maybe even gas, Fleets, but certainly coal fleets with nuclear should be the priority. If we lived in a rational world, that would be the discussion that would that, that would yeah. You know, but we don't, so we're not. Obviously, this is what we're talking about is Western politics. Sure, and no, it's an important distinction to make, right? Because you get any China and India and Russia, and actually these guys are building nuclear power stations, right? Lots of nuclear power stations. So the logic to uranium is not that there's suddenly everyone in the West is going to stop being so bloody stupid and realise that nuclear. Part of the uranium piece is that people in the east have already figured this out and they are already building nuclear power plants. And the, the demand for uranium is growing. Right. So that's one part. The supply side is very, very different. There's been a complete collapse in the market valuation of, uh, of uranium stocks. Well, OK, it's, it's actually started to turn around over the last year or so. But um, there's a huge shortage of uranium Supply at a time when demand is growing and is is going to grow through the roof. So, this is really just basically a kind of commodity story, right? You've had a commodity bust, demand has continued to grow, and there just isn't the capacity to satisfy that demand. So, it's going to have to be higher prices. So, I think my guess is you're probably looking at like a 5x or, you know, 5 to 10x on the uranium
0: price. That brings us nicely to the broader commodity spectrum, which I, I guess in any inflation driven portfolio allocation decisions, commodities will, if not play a part, which would be surprising, but they'll still come into the thought process. So when you look at what's happening in the commodity space over this last year, obviously the the outside forces that have made a lot of these moves happen are things we have to kind of find a way to look through. But but what do you see when you look at commodities? Which ones do you think are, you know, obviously lumber was just a, a short period of craziness, but when you look across that spectrum, what do you see and what do you like and how does that fit into a portfolio, given the stuff we talked about earlier? So the first thing I should say is I, I don't actually like commodities, you know,
1: and kind of, you know, my bias is against commodities. You know, I said we, we own some gold and we own some uranium kind of privately, not, again, not in the fund. And I think there's a logic to doing that. We've, we've kind of looked at oil and gas um, and we like, I like oil and gas a lot as well. Um, again, for kind of similar reason, maybe similar reasons to, to, to uranium to the extent yep. that fundamentally I think you've just got huge demand supply imbalance. You've just, you know, you've had like collapse in Capex for the last five years in, in oil. It was really it was really hit by two kind of uh, kind of cataclysmic events, you know, within space of a couple of years. You had the shale gale of 15, uh, 14, 15, and um, and then you had the, the pandemic, right? Uh, 2020. Um so there's just there's there, there no investment in supply. And again, there's this kind of assumption that, you know, we're going post-oil, we're going post-carbon, we're, post we're going electric. But I, I think that, that, which is true, that it's absolutely happening, but it takes much longer to happen than, than that. I think according to Bloomberg's numbers, there will be more combustion engines for passenger cars on the road in 10 years' time than there are today, right? So that's, that's, there's actually going to be a growth even during this EV transition. So basically, oil has a future, but there's no supply. So guess what's going to happen at the price? Um, and of course, if you're kind of bullish on oil, then that probably makes you bullish on natural gas as well. We're still kind of looking around for, for kind of good investments there. I, I hope we haven't kind of missed the boat on it. So I, I like those kind of things. You know, I, I think just generally speaking, commodities go down in real terms over time. And the reason for that is because we get better at getting the stuff out of the ground. You know, we get more efficient at getting the stuff out of the ground. Uh, and you might get more efficient at making, I don't know, cars or computers as well and just in the same way that you get more efficient at getting copper out the ground but you know a car or a computer today is very different from a car or a computer 20 years ago right because the innovation works at the top end as well yeah right so the innovation yes we can make it more cheaply but we can actually make it better right so you can actually you know a a personal computer today in real terms is roughly what it was 20 years ago even though it's much more powerful copper is just copper it's just a lump of copper right so there's no real reason to to increase the the price of the lump of copper that you're selling. It's just a lump of copper. So what happens is the price just falls. And over time, I think I've got day going back to like 1860 commodity price index. And in real terms, there's very, very big waves up. Right. In real yeah. terms, it basically just goes down. So unless you think that you're pretty good at, you know, timing those waves, which I, I don't really feel I'm pretty good at that, then I'm not really, I'd be wary of commodities
0: to be honest interesting so so where so where do you look for for protection against you know, if that duration bubble is over yeah where do you look for protection against what what follows
1: uh, you know I, 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 i'll try and keep it simple because it's it's, it's it's pretty kind of there are various kind of nuances but basically i kind of think that this duration bull market we'll call it that rather than a bubble this duration bull market, yeah that's
0: fair okay that's fair right yeah.
1: that's over um, but that duration bull market has kind of has been a phenomenal tailwind for pretty much everything that's had a brilliant forty years, right? So all the stuff that's worked over the last forty years, which could be government bonds, right? Yep. Um, or corporate bonds. I mean, Pimco was built on the back of a duration bull market, right? It can be equities, right? Which are the ultimate kind of long duration asset, the real duration asset. So it's a little bit different, but still duration related to those things, private equity, people willing to lock the money up for 10 years, venture equity, right? People willing to kind of um, sell that liquidity for, for, for extra return. I just think all of that stuff is over. So if you think that stuff's over and you don't want government bonds, you don't want corporate bonds, you don't want equities, you don't want private equity, you don't want venture, you don't want real estate, it doesn't leave you with much. Right, right? Yeah, to my point, well, yeah. well, well, what's left, and the answer is not much. Right, the the answer is you end up in this very kind of niche space where you're looking for, frankly, quite small niche investment opportunities, and in our case, on the fund, very small niche strategies. Right, so we typically, you know, I think where most people would stop. With their kind of investments, because they're just a little bit too funky, is kind of where we start. That's where we start to get right. 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 So I think that as I said we, we don't do we don't do credit. We don't do fixed income. Sorry, we do do credit. We don't do fixed income. Right. There is a, a difference. Yeah. Um. But, so we don't do fixed income. We don't do equity. We don't do anything that's equity like. So we don't do long short equity. We don't do event driven. We don't do structured credit. You know long only structured credit, I should say, because all of these things, they basically just look like equity, right? You know, they will be like 8 9% a year, 8 9% a year, 8%, 9% a year, 8% 9%. oh, down 30%, right? And <laughs> <laughs> um, when everything else is down 30%, I, they don't protect you at all exactly when you want that protection. Uh, so if we don't do any of those kind of strategies, again, what does it leave us with? And, and it leaves us with very kind of niche stuff. So we do reinsurance, we do convertible arbitrage. Uh, I think that those two things are pretty well established pretty kind of vanilla, really. It's not for everyone, but I don't think that it would particularly raise eyebrows, right? But as I said, that, that's probably where most people would stop, sure. right? But that's kind of where we start. I, I would say that's probably the more kind of funky end of, of of most traditional allocations, but that's the kind of vanilla end of our allocation. So we go from kind of, you know, reinsurance, convertible arbitrage, and then we'd get into stuff like synthetic credit, default correlation, private credit, very interesting area and also a minefield, but that's that's a really interesting area. And then you get out into like into the weeds, even for us. And I, I would say stuff like litigation finance, yeah, um, cryptocurrency arbitrage, prepayment risk, electricity trading—all of these kind of things are you know other other things too. So all of these kind of things, when you find managers doing this. There are some exceptions, especially in reinsurance and competitors, but typically when you find people doing these types of strategies, you're not looking at big managers, you're not looking at multi 1000000000 no, managers, you're looking at very small um, capacity constrained, off the radar uh, kind of operations that you have to kind of go and track down and, and really rely on your network to, to source. You know, there's no database with a big, you know, it's not like an old yellow pages, we can just look these guys up. So all of these things have in common, but they have no duration, Thank right? You. Um, reinsurance is typically priced off three-month LIBOR. Convertible arbitrage is an arbitrage, right? With a short-term yeah. holding period. We also do a lot of quant. My partner in this, Rob, is ex uh, Renaissance. He's ex RenTech. So um, we do a lot of quant stuff. A lot of that stuff is quite kind of high-frequency. Even the kind of lower-frequency stuff might have a holding period of like eight or nine days. So we don't really have any duration risk. And of course, what most quant managers do, not all of them, but a lot of them, they actually park most of their AUM as collateral and money market funds. Right. Right? So again, if you've got on the line that you've got very short duration asset, cryptocurrency arbitrage is like literally you know, seconds of a holding period, right? So we've kind of, you put the whole thing together and it, is, it does two things. Firstly, there is no fixed income. There is no duration risk. There is no equity risk. Secondly, it's highly orthogonal, right? Because the risk of a, a Cat 5 hurricane running through Miami, which would dent our reinsurance allocation, has absolutely nothing to do with you know, the risk of an exchange going down, right, and some right. problems in the cryptocurrency market, right? Which is something that we're exposed to in the cryptocurrency arbitrage. And none of, the, none of those two things have anything to do with our funding of litigation claims in the north of England right? Which is, you know, which is another one of our, our kind of buckets, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have yeah. something that's highly orthogonal, but has zero interest rate correlation by construction. And actually, if interest rates go up, it's going to be great for us because we're kind of long interest income. We're long variable interest, right? So that's how we've done it. But that's, I said, that's not, it's not for everyone. And it's not, no, it's not a trivial, it's not a trivial thing.
0: No. And, you know, it, and it's so interesting because I, I I keep coming back when I sit, in dark places and think dark thoughts about all this stuff. I, you know, I keep coming back to the interest rate component of this. And when I when I think about inflation and deflation and a shift over a 40-year time frame, when you said much earlier in this conversation about we've had a 40-year tailwind of interest rates going from 20% to zero, that to me is the shift. It's we've reached zero, where do we go? And so if that's the change, that change in the interest rate environment, that begets most likely a change from deflation to inflation. It it kills the duration bubble. It does all these things. But what it also does is it basically puts a stake through the heart, or at least holds the stake against the chest and, and pulls back the hammer of passive investing, right, of passive management. Because to shift away from all that, which is why what you're doing is so interesting, because it's the absolute antithesis of where the world has been going, which is... Broader ideas, big themes that everyone can participate in and everyone can play in. And it's very simple and it's, it's boiled down that I can just put money in an inflation trade or put money in inflation. And yeah. you're going the completely different direction where it's, it's so the importance of being able to manage it effectively becomes arguably the most important part of that portfolio. It's actually, you know, the, the inflation
1: trade in inverted commas for us. Is not a trade, it's an approach to portfolio construction. Yes. Right? Because actually, it's really easy to get inflation trades, right? Just go and buy gold. That's right. it. You got it. You got your inflation trade. Yeah. Now, here's the problem with that, right? Suppose the inflation doesn't show up. I suppose the deflation continues, which, by the way, 10 years ago, frankly, you and I could have and probably did at some point have a very similar conversation on yeah. our inflation forecast. Right. why are you and I suddenly so sure that this time we're going to be right? Okay. Because we were pretty sure 10 years ago we were right.
0: Oh, no, no, yeah, I'm
1: less sure right. Absolutely. So how do we know we're not here, you know, in 10 years' time saying, Oh my god, when is it more deflate? What how do we know that's not going to happen? Now, we don't is the simple answer. And therefore, when you're doing these inflation trades and you're buying gold or you're buying uh, tips or something like that, because it's easy, it's easy to buy exposure to yep. inflation. You're on the hook for being wrong. You're on the hook for deflation. Right? because there's big like deflation, then your gold goes down, your tips underperform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, what we wanted, um, and I think what you know, what's really important for us, we want a portfolio that will do very well in a duration bear market, right? We want a portfolio that's going to do fine if inflation takes off and if interest rates follow, right? That's what we want. But we also want that very same portfolio to be completely fine if there's no inflation, right? And if there's no spike in interest rates, we don't, in other words, our approach to protecting against inflation is not to find the inflation trade, right? Because finding the inflation trade means betting on inflation. It locks you into one. Yeah, exactly right. Our answer has been, why don't we just completely avoid the bet altogether, right? Just let, you know, just accept that we're not smart enough. Let other people take that bet, we're not going to take that bet. And actually finding investments and in vehicles that actually have no implicit duration or inflation in them is
0: actually kind of hard. Right. Yeah. No, and no, that's exactly. why, that's why you end up back in this world of, frankly, quite niche investment strategies. And again, you know, with the the trend has been for 40 years to accumulate more and more assets, become bigger and bigger firms. But If you're right, and and I get a strong feeling that the way you're thinking is a way a lot more people are going to have to think, it necessarily, it makes scale your enemy. You know, you can't invest billions of dollars into the, the way you're trying to do it. You can't protect yourself in the same way if you have those enormous assets under management.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you know, if someone was to a billion dollar ticket, frankly, we wouldn't be able to accept it. Right. We, we, we wouldn't be in a position to, 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 to allocate that capital. I do actually think, having said that, that what we're doing is potentially scalable because there's a whole, you know, as I said, there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there. There's a whole bunch of managers out there and the universe is growing. Right. You know, the, um, the monetization and the, the securitization, if you like or the tokenization, as the crypto guys would call it. But this kind of move to basically liquefy assets that were previ- had previously never really had a market is, is something which is ongoing, and um, which, by the way, I think is a, a kind of good thing. Um, but that's actually that's expanding our universe, right? Yeah. Um, now, it might do that in a capacity-constrained way, but... Certainly, as, as far as we've been able to see, there is no shortage of really interesting portfolio components. There's no shortage of really interesting kind of investors. What it means is, you know, if you were to launch a fund of funds with 50 bucks and you might find, you know, you, you might focus on long short equity managers and you've got 10 managers, right? Or maybe, you know, a couple of macro managers, a couple of quants, you know, and the rest long short equity, right? That would be pretty kind of standard um, yeah. employment stuff. Um, for the hedge fund allocation, if you suddenly go from fifty to five hundred, you can do pro rata those managers. Yep. Right. Whereas we can't. You know, I mean, some of our managers are capped at fifty million. You would not take more than right. So we have to find more managers. Right. So if we were to, as we get bigger, we actually we our portfolio goes from say twenty managers to thirty managers or to forty managers. Right. Um, but that's how it would, would would scale. But as I said, you know. Uh, we said at the beginning, our, our kind of job really is, we, we set this up for ourselves fundamentally. And what what's happening is that other people seem to be interested in it. But we didn't set up to kind of become the black rock of alternative investments. Right. We're we not <laughs> set up to, we, we, you know, it's not, the ambition here isn't to become, you know, a kind of um, elephant in the industry.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, you, you, you unwittingly dropped the C-bomb. So before we close, we'll have to dig into this because I am interested in your thoughts on crypto. Yeah, you know, it's a space that. <laughs> c bomb. I was like, you, "Oh my god!" What, what did I do? What, do I, I do? what <laughs> did I do? because you <laughs> know
1: I, I've really, yeah, I, I do have a kind of tendency to to drop
0: the odd f bomb. Um, yeah, but over only over dinner. I found You're never in a professional setting. <laughs> but the but, but Glasgow language, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you can take the boy out of Glasgow and all that. But let's talk about because I am interested in your thoughts on this, because as someone I know who understands studies and recognizes the importance of history the way you do and is open to new ideas, I'm curious as to your your thoughts on crypto, because I suspect you've spent a lot more time than many thinking about it. Um My
1: thoughts on crypto, I mean, yeah, I've got, yeah, you know, can you be more specific?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I, 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 I realize it was, it, was an incredibly, it was an incredibly broad question for which I apologize. So, so let me narrow it down a bit. As you look at the evolution of crypto, yeah, how do you think it goes from here? Because the thing that, I, that, that baffles me, and I'm undecided because I, I, I look at the pros, I look at the cons, my, my natural inner skeptic is always screaming in my ear about this stuff. And yet, on the flip side there are an awful lot of people for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect who are all in on this thing. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, you're another one of those people who I respect your process. I respect your, your intellectual rigour. So I'm curious as to whether you think this is at one end of the spectrum, which is, you know, the, the future of finance, the, uh, something that we will build the next uh, global monetary system on, or a fraud slash Ponzi scheme? Because it it seems like there is very little between those two.
1: I think that, you know, I think more generally, not just in crypto, um, but if you just think more generally about people's discussions of ideas, I think that the militants are are never right, ever, right? It doesn't matter what the domain is. It doesn't matter what, (laughs) the, the extremists are always wrong. Yeah. So I think that you're, you're kind of Bitcoin maximalists um, who think that uh, who these uncompromising kind of proponents of crypto for everything and crypto being the solution to everything, not just crypto, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, yeah. Right? I think that these guys are dummies. Right? Right. They're not dummies, but I think that particular, they can be highly intelligent, highly articulate, and and, and they can be lovely people, but they just just happen to hold a particularly stupid idea, right? Uh, Which we all do, right? And that's not a good, because we all, you know, we all believe something that's just completely dumb.
0: Mate, I still think England might win the Euros, so how dumb am I? there you
1: go, right? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, a couple of weeks ago, I thought Scotland might not embarrass themselves, you know?
0: Oh well, no no! All right, now we're talking a whole new level of dumb. I mean, that's a whole new. I mean,
1: let's just. I mean, why why did I think that? We've just seen Switzerland beat France, which was which was fantastic. You know, um, we saw uh, the Czechs beat the Netherlands. You know, we nearly saw Croatia turn over Spain. It came really close. And every tournament throws up these surprises, these yeah. wonderful surprises, these underdogs, just really, really, really kind of you know. Um, upending the kind of um, uh, the, the expectation uh, but it's never Scotland ever <laughs> why are we always crap we're always and it never dying. will be we- <laughs> so uh, you know the, the thing is the reason why Scots have a- always enjoyed these tournaments this is for anyone who isn't England they-
0: well, exactly right exactly so, right.
1: Just, so they typically always have a good tournament in the end because yeah. right? ultimately <laughs> England lose as well but I kind of think yeah, I'm wondering they might be getting a bit nervous. This this might not be their year, you know. Not yeah. only they embarrass themselves. Anyway, we're kind of off off Well, off, look, off. It's,
0: it's, but it is against the perfect metaphor: underdogs disrupting the the the, the big. No, I think it, back it, to crypto.
1: I, I mean, to go to, to 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 kind of go back to what what we were talking about, you know, everyone kind of believes something stupid, and I think you've got a lot of very smart, intelligent, kind of techy people who really think that you know, in twenty or thirty years' time there will be no fiat currency system, it will all be decentralized crypto. I, 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 they might be right, um, you know, but I, I doubt it. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got guys who are clearly not dummies, right? Clearly not dummies, the highly thoughtful, accomplished, smart people. Guys like Charlie Munger, yeah. right? Or Paul Singer, who you, you, know, you, you guys have had on your show. And I think they've got, like Charlie Munger calls Bitcoin rat poison right? I think Singer called it um, a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, And I just think, that's really stupid. I'm sorry. I know you guys are kind of my heroes, but that's just really dumb. And they're kind of militants at the other end, and the militants are always wrong. So the answer is somewhere in the middle. Now, where in the middle? I think it's probably closer to the kind of Bitcoin maximalists than the Ponzi schemers, right? Uh, I think it's probably closer to- Bitcoin actually having quite a kind of fund or cryptocurrencies having a very fundamental role in the financial system um, and, you know, 20, 30 years time, which I think will probably be a parallel system. Right. Yeah. But, you know, that's probably where I fall on this. So I think that, you know, if you're looking at the, if you start with the kind of two extremists, the kind of the, the, the maximalists and the Ponzi schemers, the maximalists will probably be a bit closer to to being right than the policy schemes. Because I think fundamentally, it has a future. It is going to be around tomorrow and the day after, and it's not going to go away. I think it's not going to go away ever, right? And if, if you think that, then your question is, well, what role does it play in the future, right? It's not, does it exist or doesn't it exist? Does it all blow up, or, or right? If you actually think it has a future, then you have to, well, what, what, what role does it play in the future? I said, I think that you probably, you've already seen it, right? There's more money, there's more money locked in DeFi contracts than there are um, cat bonds outstanding, right? So the DeFi market is bigger than the cat bond market yeah. already, right? And that's already in a world that frankly, no one knows how to bloody use DeFi, right? So, uh, you know, it's, it's already happening. Uh, so, but we've kind of seen, we've seen booms and we've seen busts and we've seen the crypto winter, we've seen crypto winters, right? And these kind of this kind of wave of interest, that comes with the bull market, right? And so we've just seen another one now. I feel that even despite these waves of interest, people aren't trying to understand it. You know, I, I think that people aren't really, frankly, paying attention. And I think that people are typically very dismissive. Um, and one of the reasons they're dismissive is because Typically, of, of of the of the community which is interested in crypto, which is typically young, yeah. um, and typically idealistic, and typically not that financially literate, right? It's kind of important. It's yeah, not, no, it's very important. It's not an investor community; it's a tech community, right? And so the investment community kind of looks snorts at these kind of unsophisticated investors. And by the way you know, there are a lot of dummies in crypto, right? So it's not like a lot, a lot of these kind of, you know, adult, grown-up investors, seasoned investors don't have a lot of ammunition when they're talking about how how kind of silly some of these kind of crypto enthusiasts are. It's true. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, euphemistically, it's a, it's a very retail market, all right? I think it's just too easy to dismiss the technology and the force of the crypto idea by kind of looking at some of the kind of crazier elements of the community.
0: Yeah, no, I, it's, it's it's funny. As I said, you know, I am a, a, a skeptic by nature. I, I like to think I'm a skeptic rather than a cynic, because there is definitely a, a difference between the two. But I, but I think you're right. And it's got it's, closed it's, mind, right? Yeah, Skeptics exactly. Exactly like right. Mind. Exactly right. And and, and so I, you know, I'm I'm skeptical about the stuff. I, I like I said, but I take my I do take my cue from a lot of people I respect, and 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 I do realize that it seems to require an incredible investment into understanding this thing. If you you know, if you want to really understand it. It's a big chunk of your time. It's a big chunk of your focus to try and dig into this stuff. And, and it I, I feels to me that you really have to believe in this thing to commit the amount of time you need to really understand it. Yeah, well, I mean, why why are you sceptical? Yeah, you know, I've had questions that I haven't had answers about very big things. Before I drill down into it, you know, particularly when I talk about regulation, when I talk about uh, governments banning it when I talk about the on-ramp, off-ramp. The, and, and a lot of the headlines I'm seeing that I'm seeing recently out of China in terms of crackdowns on both miners, in terms of a lot of the exchanges having their banking withdrawn, there are a lot of things happening that are the kind of first order stuff that I want to understand why. Why can't this happen? Why can't that happen? Why can't the other yeah. happen? Yeah. And so far, all of them seem to be happening. Yeah, And so... I don't know how it gets past this. I'm not saying it won't, but these are big obstacles to get past. And what does it look like on the other side? If it is heavily regulated, if it is pulled into the banking system, does it really exist in the form that it was designed to exist in? I don't know the answers to these questions. But what kind of stops me in my tracks, to your point about the the maximalists, um, the idealists at one end of the spectrum is, they see no chance that Bitcoin can be stopped. They see no chance that the government can ever regulate right. it. They see no chance that, you know what I mean? And yet the evidence is everywhere, particularly it seems recently in the last couple of months, these restrictions seem to be happening on a daily basis. And and so that, my yeah. skepticism is not about the technology. It's not about the idea about Bitcoin and what it's designed to do. It's can it survive the very real threat that it poses to those who it threatens? Yeah, so, so I mean, um, I think the simple answer
1: is, to, to all of your questions, To if I could, my answer to your questions is, yes, all of those things can happen. That's it. It's very, very simple. Yes, right. they, can, they, they can all happen, right? I mean, i kind of also say that, you know, the S&P fell 80%. Uh, in in 80 months 86% in a year and a half in the early 1930s yeah right um i think that the um the topics went to zero the dax went to zero um your savings and you know most you know, various government bonds in various countries has, has 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 gone to zero yeah in other words there is a tail there is a tail to these kind of investments equity investments um nominal um uh, fixed income investments they all have their tail Gold is banned. Yep, I said earlier, you know, one of the things that, that we really like investing in is reinsurance. Now, if um, if a cat five goes right through Miami, you know, we'll take a huge hit, right? Uh, our portfolios, they were, we'll all take a huge hit because everyone's one way or another is on the hook for, for, for that kind of loss. Yeah. That's the tale. Yeah. And by the way, actually, there's an even bigger tale. The bigger tale is that just as a, a Cat 5 goes right through the heart of Miami, uh, an earthquake rips right through California, right? That's our tail. Yeah. So, you know, everything, everything has a tail. And if anyone is telling you that they don't have a tail, there isn't some kind of scenario
0: that will blow them up. Then they just haven't thought hard enough about it, right? Well, I I, 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 I totally get that. Take that point, uh, but my so crypto the, has a tail. So that's that's, it's, that's it's, the, the, the that's a false point. Yes, crypto absolutely has a, right. Yeah, absolutely right. right. But, but the peculiarity, all. the peculiarity of crypto, is that the big tail. It seems to me, and, and again, I don't hold myself up to be any kind of expert, but the big tail is action by the people that crypto is specifically designed to destroy. And those people have the ability and the legislative power to impose that tail upon crypto. It's not necessarily an exogenous event that is the tail for crypto. It is a response to the threat it poses, which is a very, to me, is a very different kind of tail.
1: So, I mean, um, yeah. And the truth, listen. so, So, I think your question is: Look, they can shut this down. Yeah, and, 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 right. and we, should, the, we should narrow
0: that down to Bitcoin rather than crypto, in
1: fairness. I'm not sure how easy it is to draw the distinction because they kind of use very similar infrastructure, right? I'm not sure, you know, And I, I mean, anyway, I mean let, let me just try and answer that question, right? And we could start off by saying, well, okay, you're saying that the government can just shut this down, right? And China just demonstrating that they could shut this down, right? They could easily shut this down. And maybe that's not right. Maybe that's not actually, that's not what's happened, right? China actually did its first Bitcoin ban, I think in 2014.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Right, they banned uh, ICOs in 2017. And then there's been another couple of bans over the last couple of years, right? Who's the biggest Bitcoin miner? today? The answer is it's China. Yeah. If the Chinese were so good at shutting down crypto, why are they the biggest miners of crypto in the world? Right Now, I don't know the answer, but one possible answer to that is because it's actually a bit more difficult to shut down than you think. Right Now, you can actually go further and say, well, they weren't actually serious about it, but they are getting serious about it. Right. And now what they're doing is they're actually they're enforcing regulations that have been in place for for years. But now they're really, really enforcing them. And now you are actually going to see a crypto crackdown, a proper crackdown in China. And I actually think as far as we can see, as far as we are hearing, um, this latest crash in crypto has been driven by Chinese and Asian selling. Right. So the Chinese and Asians are spot sellers in a way that they haven't been, I think, ever really,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So it does feel, A, it does feel that like there's something going on in China. And B, I think that this, this puke that you're seeing in the market or that you've seen over the last month has actually been driven by actual Chinese selling, which, you know, so that's kind of uh, kind of interesting. But maybe, maybe it's not actually as easy to, to shut down as you think, right? So that's one thing. The second thing is, if you look at some of the other news items, what have we seen? Right, we've seen um, okay. The Chinese have have cracked down again. They've been doing this for years with much success, but let's just say that this time they are going to get it right. Uh, you've seen the um, Basel have come up with a consultation paper yep. talking about the capital requirements for cryptocurrency. Right, we've seen uh, the SEC talking about the need for regulation of the of the market to prevent money laundering. You've seen the Fed explicitly mention tether, mm-hmm. right? And talk about the need for oversight of the backing of tethers, you know, which is kind of interesting me because there's nothing back in the US dollar, right? Right, <laughs> right? so they can, they can apply standards to, to tether that they're not setting for themselves. But anyway, that's kind of beside the point, right? In other words, what you're seeing in the West is a need and a desire to regulate it. Not to ban it, not to
0: outlaw. It. No, no, uh, yeah, right?
1: sure, and sure. so, and, and I, and I feel that that's more kind of consistent with, if you like, the way things happen in the West, right? You go a little bit further out, you go into Latin America, right? You know, where you know, big chunks of Latin America don't even have bank accounts. El Salvador's just made it legal tender. Yeah, right. Mexico is talking about doing the same. Paraguay is talking about doing the same. Right? It's, it's explicitly been legalized in Venezuela. In fact, one of the most interesting investment opportunities we've seen is a Be- Venezuelan Bitcoin mining opportunity. Right. So what's actually happening is in these countries that don't have, and by the way, people do not trust their local currencies. They don't trust the local currencies in, these kind of, um, uh, in places like Latin America. Right. They're used to the local currencies being phenomenally volatile. They don't have bank accounts. They rely on remittances. Bitcoin is like an absolute godsend for these guys, but for sure, for sure. So what I'm saying is, why did why does that go away? Why do these people go away? Right? Once these guys start, you know, it, I can still piece together scenarios where it does go away, and where in thirty or forty years' time, it's just a you know, it's a, a kind of footnote in history book, right? I, I, I get that, I can see it. I think it's far more likely that actually this thing is just out of the bottle, and before you know it, the kind of authorities, the regulators. They figure out a way to live with it, and then from there it just keeps growing, right? Because yeah. fundamentally, people actually like to use it, right? That's the fundamental thing. There is a market demand
0: for it. And, yeah, look, look, and that's that, that's why I wanted to pick your brains about it because it's you know, I'm I'm in a very similar camp to you. I think we we probably skew the risk at either tail differently between us. But I agree. And that's why this, you know, the the, the maxis, with their absolute certainty about what's going to happen, we have no idea what's going to happen. And it could conceivably go in either direction. And that's why for me, you know, it's not something that I am drawn to spend a phenomenal amount of my time in. There are other things that I'd rather spend that time on because I just I have enough uncertainty about the future to make it just unsuitable for me, frankly.
1: Yeah, I think that's fine. You know, I mean everyone kind of um you know everyone has to make their own decisions. I think that it's not as complex as you think, it's not as difficult as you think. I think and here's something that might surprise you. If you actually spend some time using some of these DeFi protocols, right? Open up an account at you know, some kind of exchange, get yourself, yeah. if you haven't already, get yourself just, you know, some some kind of pocket money in Ethereum, right? Get yourself a MetaMask wallet and start using some of these protocols. Start surfing Web3, if you like, right? It's kind of the decentralized web. And you know, you just want want, you will not want to go back. It's just such a clean experience. See compared to the existing infrastructure. Right, the existing website, the existing payments infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. yeah you buy stuff yeah. on PayPal, and it's, it asks you for your password, and then it hands you over to your Visa, and Visa asks you for your password, and then you can't, and then it sends a message to your phone, and then you're putting in right. right, right. And then, and then it wants another security question because it's not some unusual activity in your account. So can you, can you please give us your security question? You say, oh my, God, really? You haven't asked for that for fifty years, and I, and I'm supposed to remember who you know and what my first pet was called. Oh shit! And then I put the wrong, and then I've got to reset my password, and then, you know, blah. Well, that's what that's, yeah, just, yeah, that's yeah. the experience of, of being online right see when you're when you've got your um uh, when you're plugged into web3 through your metamask and you're transacting with ethereum with various things which might be um you know they might be kind of DeFi things they might be other things it's just so clean so smooth so seamless it's kind of like being in a quiet room when you've basically just had the kind of in-laws and the, and the kids over, right? It's just, it's just such a wonderful experience. You wouldn't <laughs> want to go back. And see, when you start to use that, you're like, okay, right? I, I get why people are excited about this. Yeah, right? I get why a lot of technologists are saying, yeah, this is, this is the way it has to go, right? Uh, and then there's all sorts of other benefits, which you point earlier, actually kind of threaten uh, incumbent power. Right, which is one of the things that the the, the 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 kind of zealots love about it, and one of the things the show. it's one of the things that people who are suspicious about it actually feel turned off by, right? You know, they're, so they're hang on, wait a minute, I don't want to be a part of any bloody revolution, <laughs> right? I just I just I just want to kind of watch TV and and, and and go in the way. I don't want to be part of your revolution. I I, I don't hate government. I don't hate centralized authorities. And, and that's totally completely fine and reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So You can see why they put off, but. You know you just saw effectively donald trump and by the way, not a trump fan don't like the guy find him completely obnoxious right i had very very deep reservations watching him get, watching him get shut down by silicon valley right sure. so i really don't like this whole kind of cancel culture which is all over the web uh, i don't like this i don't like the way parlor was shut down it was absolutely terrifying right if you look at um, uh, China, and you look at the kind of surveillance society that they have put in place, it absolutely terrifies me. So the value to having some kind of censorship-resistant expression, some you know potentially anonymous means of communication, is just absolutely astronomical in this to me, in this and in, in this world. Yeah, yeah. Right. You have a financial system which is all about financial control and financial surveillance. So I, I just feel that cryptocurrencies actually have a they have a value. Right? People value using them, and therefore, they're going to have a future,
0: right? Yeah, I, I, I say I don't disagree with anything you said there, anything at all. I, I, and it's that, that's my one big unknown, uh, my one big tale is that I think everything you said there is right. Unfortunately, a big part of what you said was the threat this technology poses to those states who are trying to you know, have more control rather than less and, and less ways out of the system and less means by which people can either communicate amongst themselves without interference or transact amongst themselves. And that's that, that, I guess that they're the kind of the twin thoughts I try and hold in my head at the same time is that it does produce an awful lot of good, but the good it produces is its Achilles heel because it's the reason why it might at some point need to be shut down
1: yeah listen if it's if it's shut downable right you know I yeah, don't, yeah. don't forget that um gold ownership has been illegal you know at various points in the last century in various countries right it was illegal to own gold I think and silver as well in America in 30s, yeah. 40s 50s 60s 70s. Right, yeah it was illegal yeah. in the uk yeah.
0: in the 70s yeah it right? has been made illegal right so what happened to gold well yeah, but it's but it's different because I can meet you in a dark alley I can to hand you a small packet with some gold in it, and unless someone's standing there watching us do it, there's no record of that transaction. There's no, there's no nothing. No, I don't right. even have to. I don't even have to meet you to, to to send you Bitcoin. Oh, I no, no, no. I absolutely no. I, I well, if you've got your course, private key,
1: that. if you've got your private key, right? In the same way that you know, you think to, you go back kind of, you know, to the thirties, Roosevelt makes gold illegal, right? You know, so you have to hand in your gold. And you yeah. yes, lots of people hand in the gold. I'm sure both of us, obviously, as law-abiding citizens, gold, hand in our gold, you know. Obviously. Um, you know, uh, but some rascals out there might not. Some individuals might, might not want it. What would they do? They would put it in the garden somewhere, okay? Or they would, they, would, they would stash it somewhere. Now, suppose you kind of just, instead of gold, you say, well, crypto is illegal. Now, do you have your private keys or not? Because if you've got your private keys, yes, you can give those to the government, Right. But some people might actually not want to do that they keep the private keys now they can't shut down the blockchain they can't shut down the internet everyone who still got the private keys still has the coins right right but but and there's, it's a, but the, same, there's it's a... the same way that people still had the gold they still had the krugerrands, right and by the way in some countries it was absolutely fine to use those krugerrands. so what how do you shut how do you shut down Bitcoin now I'm by the way again I'm not I'm not saying that this is a particularly one, you know, a, a crackdown like this where they actually made ownership illegal
0: would be a particularly happy environment for crypto. The price would no, 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 no. absolutely collapse. But how do you actually kill it? But this is why I love having these conversations with people like you that are open-minded because, look, we don't know. My point is, I guess, at some point, unless Bitcoin is a means, a parallel, like you say, a parallel payment system all over the world, accepted all over the world, you need at some point to convert those Bitcoins into currency, into the currency of the state, whichever state it may be. Now, it may mean that you've got to convert your Bitcoins into some obscure South American currency and then try and get it into dollars or pounds or yen or euros or whatever it may be. I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying that they can make things extremely difficult for you Oh, no, that. that's,
1: that's absolutely true. And, and again, I, I, hope this, I hope this isn't the way it goes, right? And, and, and I, I think it probably isn't. But again, gold was confiscated and made illegal, and uh, it didn't stop people from keeping it and using it, right? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, in Latin America, dollars have been made illegal. Right? When they've had hyperinflations and they had problems with the currency. And so um, obviously people would rather use dollars than Argentinian pesos. And what did the government do? They ban dollar ownership. So what do you get? You get a black market in dollars. Black
0: market, yeah, of course. Why? Because
1: people, because people want to use dollars. There is a demand for a currency that people. So Bitcoin's now in that mix, right? No, no, absolutely. Pretty, no, it's undeniable. Well, well, yeah. Again, to where I started out, I think it has a future. I don't think you can shut it down. I don't think it does go away. Right. Um, and as I said, therefore, what role does it play in the future? Um, and I said that there's a whole wide spectrum, but it going to zero because it's a quantity scheme and has no value, for me, that's not in the range. That's a zero. Yeah. That's a yeah. 0% probability. That's not. OK, yeah, no, I think problem. I think.
0: We're, we, all right. We can, we can come to an agreement on that then, for sure. <laughs> Mate, listen. It's been. I've just. I've just seen how much of your time I've stolen from you on a beautiful afternoon in Switzerland. So I, I apologise for that. But um, it, it has been more fun than I even thought it would be. Which was an extremely high bar. So well done you for hurdling that with ease.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Likewise, really enjoyed it. It's great to talk to you again.
0: What? Look. look but, uh, until we uh, next get a chance to actually visit in person and have dinner or something, um, let just let people know how they can find out more about what you are doing now because I'm sure this conversation will have piqued a lot of people's interest in the stuff you're talking about because I mean I haven't spoken to anyone that's talking about this kind of stuff
1: um, well I mean I'm kind of sporadically on Twitter Dylan Grice uh, Twitter is in, again I'm, LinkedIn's not a great way to, re, to to get hold of me at the moment I don't use it but you can get me on on the air Dylan.grice at is is probably the best way
0: fantastic Fantastic. Mate, listen, it's always a pleasure and this has been a, a particularly, a particular pleasure for mine. So thank you for taking this time uh, and um, hopefully I'll get to see you soon. Yeah, man, definitely.
1: Thanks a lot. And um, yeah, it'll be good to
0: good to see you soon, hopefully. All right, take care of yourself. Bye, right, mate. See you, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, Thanks bye. Over the years, Dylan's work has been hugely influential in my own thinking, and that conversation, I think, demonstrated perfectly why that's been. He's smart, he's funny, engaging, and he has a truly unique perspective and a real gift for effective communication. I truly can't recommend Dylan's work highly enough, so do follow him on Twitter. You'll find him at Dylan Grice, and find out more about Calderwood Capital at calderwoodcapital.com. That's all from me for now. I'll see you next time.